0: Thank you, Wesley and Josh Marie. Thank you for singing out this evening. I want to ask you now to take your Bibles, turn with me to, one, uh, to Hebrews chapter 8, as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. Last week, we were in chapter 7, the second half, and we saw that Jesus is the a better priest of a better covenant, but the focus was on his priesthood, and we looked at a number of ways in which Jesus priesthood was superior to that of the Levitical priest, But the most precious aspect of all of these we find in verse 25, which tells us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for us. And I just find it so encouraging to think about that the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus himself, prays for me, prays for you. And as Pastor Mark talked about this morning… Even when we find ourselves overwhelmed and we feel like we cannot even pray or the only thing we can pray is help, Jesus prays for us personally, individually, every single one of us. Now, we've been praying for the last several weeks for John and Bethana Cordy because of John's cancer, and I don't know for sure that they were watching that sermon uh, but Bethanna said something that greatly encouraged my heart. I hope it, if you saw it, I hope it did you, yours as well. But she wrote this on Monday. I was so overwhelmed with the truth of Jesus interceding for John in the song, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. So she didn't say it was in the sermon that she heard that. It was from that song. We've been so thankful for everyone's prayers, and we beg they continue, but be reminded that Jesus always lives to make intercession for my darling. Hebrews seven twenty five was such a balm to my soul. He loves John. He plants nothing but the best for him. He is not far away, but so near and embracing him. Even when John has difficulty breathing, that was so comforting to remember. Now, part of me says we can close our Bibles now and go home, right? But we're not going to do that. Uh, again, I don't know whether she uh, was reflecting on this message that I preached last Sunday. I do know that there are others who listen to it. My mother-in-law listens to our sermons every week. Um, and so thank you guys up there. And uh, I got a phone call this afternoon. Some of you know Andrew Whaley. Andrew listened to our sermons every week. He listened to Pastor Marks this morning and called me and said he was going to listen to the one tonight. And I said, "Give me a shout out on your sermon." So, hey, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> but I do appreciate the ministry of our of our guys up in the audio booth because because uh, the word goes out and it's a blessing to people um, who cannot be here. Well, the fact that we have such a high priest, uh, one who is, is is personal, who prays for us, is eminently practical, it's personal. And so, this evening, we want to unpack a little bit more of this, the truths about Jesus as our great high priest, and the focus is that he now is that he is the mediator of a new covenant. In chapter 7, verse 22, it says he's the guarantor of a better covenant, and chapter 8 tells us how that is actually so. So, three things that uh, we'll be drawing out of the text this evening. Uh, I've organized it into three peas in a pod, if you would. The priesthood of the new covenant, the place of the new covenant, the heavenly tent rather than the earthly, and the promises of the new covenant. So, we have this contrast between Jesus and the Levitical priest, between the heavenly temple and the earthly tent, and between the old and the new covenant. Well, let's look, first of all, at the priesthood. Well, first of all, I haven't read the text. Let's do that. In Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth... He would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant. He mediates as better since it was enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they do not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make, And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So let's look, first of all, at the priesthood of the new covenant. And he begins verse 1 saying the point of this in what we're saying. And he's basically summarizing all of his argument, primarily the, uh, the focus on Jesus as the guarantor of the new covenant that we find in chapter 7. And so he devotes chapter 8 to Showing us how that's so, how it is that Jesus is indeed the guarantor of a better covenant. So, how is He? Well, first of all, we find here that Jesus is our high priest. Don't miss this. It says, We have such a high priest. It's not simply that Jesus is such a high priest. Do you see the distinction? It's not simply Jesus is such a high priest, superior to the Lord. It says, We have our possession our relationship. From the very outset, the emphasis here is on the personal relationship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. At, in chapter 7, this, it tells us this priesthood is continual. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And he speaks in chapter 7, though, of those who draw near to God through him. But here, it's us. We have such A great high priest. It's reminiscent of chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, which are really a a hallmark text in all of Hebrews. So, look with me again. We'll read it once again. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, which I believe was our memory verse of last month, correct? Hebrews 4, 14, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It's not simply that Jesus is a great high priest. He's our high priest. There's a relationship there. It's intensely personal. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He invites us. He bids us come before him to his throne of grace. And this... This personal emphasis contributes to our sense of assurance of salvation, that full assurance of faith that we're supposed to be holding fast to. Hebrews 6:11 tells us that we're, we're, we're to have this full assurance of hope until the end. Christian, hear me. assurance of salvation is a tremendous spiritual blessing. Do you value how precious? the sense of a settled assurance is in the life of the believer. Richard Brooks, in his commentary, says, to know, and to know that we know the reality of this we have can sometimes make all the difference in the Christian life between pressing on and feeling like giving up, especially when trials and temptations are pressing relentlessly upon us and forever knocking on our door. To know he is my priest, and to know that I know can make all the difference in the world. I love the hymn, Loved with Everlasting Love. One of the verses says, His forever, only His, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee, firstborn light and gloom decline, but while God and I shall be, I am His and He is mine. There's a precious sense of comfort and stability and security when we have that assurance of faith. So we have a priest king. He is ours. But he's also seated not only as a priest, but he is seated as our priest king. Look again at verse 1. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand, of the throne of majesty in heaven. Four times in the book of Hebrews, we find it stated that Jesus has sat down or is seated at the right hand of God or the throne in heaven. Uh, and this repetition points to the priest king theme in the book of Hebrews. In Psalm 110, you remember it begins, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my feet, or sit, excuse me, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is speaking of the messianic king. And every good Jew would read that and go, Messiah will be our king. He will reign on the throne of David. So there was this expectation of a messianic king. But then you come to verse 4, and we read that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And most Jewish people at the time would look and go, wait a minute, I thought Messiah was to be a king. You're telling me now he's a priest? What does that mean? See, they expected a messianic king. They did not anticipate that he would also be a priest. Jump forward, in our day, we tend to focus more, don't we, on the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. But do you really think about, do you meditate on the reality also, he's our king, That's what the, the writer's pointing to when he said, he sat down. Now, every time we find Jesus depicted in heaven, we, in the book of Hebrews, it says, he is seated, or he has sat down. And, and in Hebrews 10, turn, turn over to Hebrews 10, just one page over, verses 11 and 12. There's a, an important contrast here between the work of Jesus and the work of the Levitical priests. Hebrews 10, and beginning in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This sitting down emphasizes a couple of really important things. First of all, his work is completed. It's once for all time. It is finished. Our sins are paid for. The high priest in the Levitical order are offering sacrifices over and over, year after year, uh, and, and they never ever take away sins. So they stand day after day, year after year, at the altar in the Holy of Holies, Serving, ministering, offering, and they accomplish nothing of eternal consequence. Jesus, once and for all time, offered his sacrifice. It was accepted. Our sins are forgiven. He was done. It is finished. And he sat down. But the second thing sitting down points to is that he is sitting down enthroned. In heaven, and it points to his kingly reign, as 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 we read in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit down at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Theologians oftentimes speak of Jesus' session. Oh, what do you mean by session? It's, a, it's an old word that means to sit, his seating. Um, And that means when Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, he rose the resurrection, he ascended into heaven, the ascension, and then he sat down, he took his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God and the majesty on high, he is enthroned in heaven as our king. And as not simply the king, as our king, what does he do? He subdues our hearts. He subdues our wills, not so that we are uh, kicking and screaming, going, No, I don't want to follow you. He subdues our wills such that we are willing and eager to follow him. He transforms us, gives us a new heart. He protects us, He provides for us. He is a servant king, one who takes up the basin and towel for the sake of his people. But also, this is so important. As our king, he has the power to secure for us all of the blessings of the covenant. Every blessing contained in the covenant. As our king, he has the power to secure that and ensure they are accomplished. Now, our closing hymn today uh, is Before the Throne of God Above. I have a strong and perfect plea. Why? Because we have a Savior, and my name is graven on his hands, but... uh, There's one problem in that hymn. You know what it is, Wesley? That's correct, yes. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Now, if it said, I know that while in heaven he sits, it wouldn't rhyme with hands, right? (laughs) But the reality is, Christ is not standing. He is seated on the throne. We're still going to sing that hymn and we can say that word. That's okay. It rhymes. But we know that we have an enthroned king who is our priest and our king, the king, priest, king of a new covenant. And it's personal. He is our priest and our king. The second thing I want you to see is the place of this new covenant, the location, speaking of the heavenly tabernacle. In verse 2, it tells us he's the minister of the holy places, or in the holy places he serves in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So, this heavenly tent, or this heavenly throne room, in fact, we find it described in Hebrews chapter, or excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah says, uh, he says, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the train of a king's robe indicated the greatness of his majesty or glory. So, a king who was really powerful, really glorious, had a really, really long train, all right, or a really long cape. Well, the train of God's robe, in other words, the glory of God, filled the temple. And in fact, in that heavenly temple, we don't see depictions of angels on the walls, and we don't see a, a, an ark with statues of angels attached to the atonement covering or the mercy seat, because there are actually real live angels covering their eyes, their faces and their feet, and flying, the six-winged angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. So we have this contrast between this heavenly tent and this earthly tabernacle. Look with me at verse 5. we We're jumping ahead just a bit. But in verse 5, we speak of the Levitical priests. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. See, the earthly tent had to be made according to that pattern God revealed. In fact, that command is repeated in Exodus 25, 26, and 27. Three times, God specifically says, Moses, see that you stick with the blueprint. See that you follow the pattern. And the reason is because that earthly tent is a copy and it's a shadow of the heavenly. And that being the reality we can recognize, however ornate, however glorious, however uh, beautiful, that earthly tabernacle might be, where Jesus serves is infinitely superior. Pastor Mark was preaching uh, recently on the 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 building of the tabernacle and how God put it on the hearts of all of the people to bring their uh, their their fine stones and jewel their jewels and gems and their their gold and silver and fine linens and skilled craftsmen coming to to build this gloriously. Beautiful tabernacle that would be their meeting place with God while they're in the desert. However ornate it might have been, however glorious Solomon's temple might have been, pales in comparison with that earthly or that heavenly tent, that heavenly tabernacle made by the Lord, not with human hands. That heavenly tabernacle uh, needs no images of angels and other glorious realities because the real angels are there. And God dwells in the midst, seated upon the throne. It's interesting that the the author here doesn't mention the temple. He only speaks of the tabernacle. And there's some suppositions why. I think probably the best uh, suggestion is maybe because He really is focusing on that time when God took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. He's speaking about the early days of the Old Covenant. And so, he speaks of the the tabernacle that was built, the tent. What we find here is that Jesus is not serving in a tent made by human hands. He is serving before the very throne of God or on the throne of God in heaven. Verse 2, he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent the Lord set up, not man. Now, verse 3 tells us it's necessary that the priest has something to offer, uh, meaning a blood, the blood sacrifice of a bull or a goat or a ram or a lamb. And it says this one, Jesus also has to have something which he must offer. That's what a priest does. And in verse, chapter 9 and verse 14, it tells us what Jesus offers. He, He speaks of the blood of Christ who through the eternal sacrifice, or excuse me, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. He doesn't offer the blood of other animals. He offers his own blood, his own self. Now, verse four, we find something really interesting. Now, if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest at all, since priests who offer gifts. they are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Jesus did not qualify to serve in the priest in the earthly temple. He was not of the Levitical line. So he was not qualified. The Old Covenant specified very definitely, this is what you must offer. He didn't offer a lamb or a bull or a goat or a ram. He offered himself. So his service, it, was not, it would not be acceptable in the earthly temple because the earthly temple was inferior. But in the New Covenant, in the heavenly temple, his sacrifice was perfect and was accepted. See, the Levitical priests, they served a copy or a shadow of those heavenly things. Jesus served in the heavenly tent, in the holy places. And because this is so, we read in verse 6 that He, as a ministry, is as much more excellent as the new covenant is over the old. Now, one of the indications that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant look at verse three if you would every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer same word offer twice but when it speaks of the levitical priests offering their gifts and sacrifices it's present tense which means over and over and over again it's a continuing action when it speaks of Jesus offering a sacrifice, it's in what's called the aorist tense, which points to a one-time completed action, not to be repeated. Again, which tells us Jesus once and for all offered him his own blood and said it is finished and it's never to be repeated. It does not need to be repeated. Our sins are covered. It's a better covenant served by a get better guarantor and a better High priest. Uh, So we have this priesthood of the new covenant. Is Jesus our priest king? And we have the place of the new covenant. But thirdly, uh, I want to talk about for the rest of our time the promises of the new covenant. Verse 6 tells us that the ministry of Jesus was as much more excellent than the Levitical priest ministry, or as much more excellent than the Levitical priest ministry as the new covenant is more excellent than the old why is that so? Well, he tells us because it's enacted on better promises. Verse 7 tells us the new co- Old Covenant was not faultless. If Verse 7, if the Old Covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. So we read that the Old Covenant wasn't faultless. Now, we need to be careful in handling that statement because we need to make sure we understand what he does mean and what he does not mean. The law of God as it was given was perfect, but it could not make sinful people perfect. The law was perfect for what it was intended to accomplish, but it could not make people perfect. It perfectly set forth the righteous standard that God required. But sinful men, we could not live up to that righteous standard. And so the law of God perfectly exposed our sin. That's why it says in verse 7, he finds fault with them. See that in verse 6, excuse me, in verse 8 rather. In verse 7, it tells us that the law or the covenant was not faultless, the old covenant. But in verse 8, it says that God found fault not with it, the covenant, but with them, the people of the covenant. It was the covenant community. It was their willful rebellion that led them to go astray. They abandoned their covenant obligations and their covenant commitments. They said, all that uh, you have said we will do, and then they didn't do it. And even though the old covenant provided for blood sacrifices to cover the sins of God's people, day after day, and then once a year, the Day of Atonement, where the uh, high priest would take that blood into the Holy of Holies and place it on the mercy seat to Intercede for the sins of God's people. It was only a symbol. Those sacrifices could never actually cleanse a single sin. So, in that sense, the old covenant was not faultless as a redeeming covenant, as a saving covenant. It could save no one, it could not remove the sins from the people of the covenant community. So, the weakness is not in the covenant per se, but in the people. Sinful men. Now, it's important that we recognize the author is not dismissing Old Testament revelation. He's not saying that, that the Old Testament's not important or it's not true or any such thing. He's demonstrating how the Old Covenant was a shadow of what was to come. It pointed forward to the new, and it is fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant accomplished exactly what God set forth for it to do, and that is to point to the new. And because the new comes, the old is no longer necessary. Those rituals and those requirements give way to the work of Christ when he accomplished redemption in his own blood. Verse 13 says that in the New Covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, obsolete. We need to understand the the principle of progressive revelation. And what that means is that God reveals a little bit of truth and then some more and then some more and he keeps building progressively on the revelation that's already been given. But he doesn't contradict himself at all. He never contradicts himself. He simply fills it out more and more. And in many cases, he shows it's not actually what you thought. It doesn't mean exactly what you thought it meant. It's pointing towards something far deeper and far better. And uh, this, uh, this adage, this, this motto is often repeated. You may have heard it. The new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. So, there are truths concealed in the Old Testament that are brought to light in the New Testament. And until the New Testament is given, we really don't understand much of what is in the Old Testament. We don't understand, can't possibly understand God's purposes in the Old Covenant. The Old Testament types and shadows, those remain in the dark until they're fulfilled by that which is authentic and that which is actual. So that brings us to verses 8 through 12, and this is really important. These are the provisions of the old covenant. And uh, the author of Hebrews is, is quoting directly from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is given this word from the Lord, here is this new covenant, and he He, he, uh, it's expounded, it's quoted here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. And we read in verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The Lord. First of all, let's look at the provisions of the old covenant. All right? There are two parties. There's God, and then there's the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Covenant between both of them. All right? God on one side, Jewish nation on the other. And it's important to realize the membership in the covenant community was a birthright. It was something that 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 came to a person simply because of his physical lineage. It was based on physical generation, you might say, so a Jewish child is born into a Jewish family. the parents are part of the covenant by necessity, he is also part of the covenant so the, the membership is based on physical realities. Any child born to Jewish parents was in, commu- included in the covenant community, but in the uh, excuse me in the stipulations of this covenant, the conditions of the covenant, God says. I took you by the hand. God desires an intimate relationship with these people. I will be your God and you will be my people. But they didn't cooperate. They did not continue to follow after the Lord. They rebelled. They went their own way. They chose to go astray. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And that's what the house of Israel and the house of Judah did. And that occurred over and over in the wilderness and it continued to occur over and over throughout the history of the Jewish nation. Now, this old covenant was conditional. There were promises and there were threats. The promise is, if you obey, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will guide you, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you. But if you repel, if you rebel, you turn from me, I will not pardon your transgression. God says, if you reject me, I will reject you. So the old covenant contains promises, but it also contains threats. And as you read through the Old Testament, you read the minor prophets, you find God calling Israel to repent. And it's like uh, many, many uh, uh, theologians speak of, of, of the major and minor prophets as God's covenant lawsuit against Israel, where he brings charges against them. And he pleads with them to repent. He says, if you will repent, I will restore you. But if you do not repent, here is the sentence. I will enact upon you. So he promised restoration if they would repent, but he promised judgment. If they refused. And so over and over, they continued to refuse, they continued to rebel. So ultimately, we read here that God showed no concern for them. Now, that word here in verse 9 I showed no concern for them is the very same word that's used back in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 when the Lord says, or when, when the author says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we show no concern. For this great salvation. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.14 do not neglect the gift that you have and God is saying I neglected I I, I put away I, I had no concern for you whatsoever because you neglected me. You disregarded me so I now disregard you. That's the conditional nature of the old covenant they showed no concern for God they disregarded him and so God is under no obligation at all to show concern for them. But here's the wonderful thing. God is rich in mercy, and His mercy and grace overflow. And so, He, in desiring to express that grace and that mercy, He establishes a new covenant, which is superior to the old covenant. It was enacted, we see, with better promises. Verse 10 through 11 tell us something of these promises. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, and without, after those days declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. They're four great promises of the new covenant. We were saying a few moments ago, I will stand on every promise of your word. And those promises of his word are possible for us because of these promises we find right here in the new covenant. The first one is the promise of a new heart. In the old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone, but in the new covenant, these laws are put put in our minds and written upon our hearts. It's no longer an external code. The Ten Commandments continue to serve us as a rule of life, but it's not a standard by which we gain acceptance before God. God graciously has put his laws in our hearts and our minds so that not only are we aware of his moral law, not only aware and conscious of that which is right and good and true and pure, but we have an inclination or a disposition to do it. The natural man, heart is inclined away from the Lord. You, children, you know what an incline is? What happens when you put some, a ball on in an incline? It rolls down the hill, right? If you pour water on in an incline, it flows down. Well, our hearts, like, uh, were inclined in a, in, that, in, in a sinful direction. So when temptation came for us, uh, just like water flowing down an incline, that's where we would go towards sin. But God has changed the inclination the incline of our hearts, and so now we're inclined toward him. That doesn't mean perfectly we obey him all the time. But when God gives us a new heart, he writes his laws on our minds. He writes them on our hearts. He inclines us, he inclines our minds and hearts to want to please him. Kistemaker, in his commentary, said, God made the old covenant with the nation of Israel and gave his people his laws written on tablets of stone. He establishes the new covenant with believers in Christ and writes God's law in the believer's heart. With this law written on his inmost being, the believer has an intimate relationship with God through Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. God has written that law on our hearts. And now we have this intimate relationship, not based on our performance, based on his. So that's the first promise. He will write his law on our hearts. The second is the promise uh, of an everlasting covenant relationship. He takes us by the hand. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. In the old covenant, God uh, took them by the hand. He, 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 he designed a, a, an intimate relationship with the people, but it was conditioned on their obedience. In the new covenant, God secures our perseverance when he gave us a new heart, when he wrote that heart on our hearts or that law, rather, on our hearts and our minds. John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. My sheep hear my voice. He says, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My sheep follow me. He secures us as his and secures that that covenant, that new covenant is unbreakable. Because it's not a conditional covenant where God says, this is my part and this is your part. The conditions are all met by Jesus on the cross. It's a covenant that God established as unbreakable. In Romans 8, 38, excuse me, it says that there's nothing in heaven and earth that could ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's a covenant that cannot be broken. God has committed himself to our eternal salvation. That's the second promise of the new covenant. The third promise is that all the covenant people will know their God. Verse 11, no longer they shall not teach each one of his neighbor neighbor, and each one of his brothers, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. In other words, there's no need to evangelize people who are in the new covenant. It doesn't say people who are in the new covenant don't need biblical instruction. Hebrews is biblical instruction. And so, he's not saying, you don't need to read what I'm writing. He's saying, in the new covenant, there's no need to tell others who are in the covenant, you need to know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of the greatest, which means every single member of the new covenant is regenerate. Did you hear me? People were entered into the old covenant by physical generation or birth. We enter the new covenant by spiritual regeneration. We are reborn, born again. We become Christians, and that places us in the new covenant. That's why I'm a Baptist. That's why I believe that the only members of the new covenant of the church are those who are already believers. And, and the covenant sign, baptism, goes toward believers. I'd like to unpack that much more thoroughly. I might actually do that, Lord willing, next Sunday. I want to make a case based on the new covenant for believers' Baptism. I believe it's important enough to dedicate a sermon to that important truth. But recognize that in the new covenant, people become members by regeneration. Old covenant, physical. New covenant, spiritual. You're not born into the the new covenant. You are reborn into the new covenant. Again, I, I said, that's why I'm a Baptist. And we'll explain more what that looks like or willing next week. The fourth promise of the Old Covenant is there's this complete forgiveness of sin. He says in verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. That was not promised in the, in the Old Covenant. He remembered their sins, and he, for, they forsook him, so he forsook them. So what does it mean when God says, I will remember your sins no more? Does that mean that God somehow develops a case of divine amnesia? That he somehow can't remember our sins? Of course not. What it means is that God will not call to mind our sins and deal with us in light of our sins. The psalmist says he does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's a new covenant reality. When he says he will remember our sins no more, he chooses not to bring them up, not to call them to mind. He chooses not to deal with us in light of our sins. He chooses rather to remember the finished work of his own son, the Lord Jesus, our great high priest and king, and he deals with us in light of Jesus' perfection, not in light of our own sin. That's a glorious promise of the new covenant. So these are the four promises that I will put my laws into their hearts, a new, a new heart, a new mind. They will all know me. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Personal, intimate relationship. It will be a spiritual vitality, spiritually alive relationship. And then finally, it's an unbreakable relationship. Oh, in verse thirteen, or excuse me, in verse uh, verse uh, eight, it says, "Behold, the days are coming when I will establish co- this covenant." When does that happen? When is the new? Does the new covenant go into effect? the jews when god brought judgment upon them and sent them off into captivity in babylon they saw that as god's uh, fulfilling those 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 prophetic lawsuits against them if you don't if you don't repent if you don't turn i'm going to you're going to be taken off into captivity over and over and over he warned them and finally he said okay and that's it and they were taken off 7 years later they returned with great anticipation they built a new temple. They built a wall around the city of Jerusalem. But it just wasn't everything they thought it would be. And They thought, oh, now the new, co- no, the new covenant was not now. It wasn't, that wasn't it. It was only with the coming of the Messiah when the Lord Jesus fulfilled these conditions of the new covenant for us. When he made that once-for-all sacrifice that cleanses us of our sins, he satisfies the righteous requirements of God's law. On the cross, he became sin in our place, and then he rose triumphant over sin and death. And in the resurrection, he conquers sin and death. He ascends to heaven. He sits down at the right hand of the throne of God in his session as the king priest. That's the establishment of the new covenant that's when it is enacted and all the conditions all the stipulations had already been met so all the promises have been secured because that is so verse 13 tells us this this new covenant renders the old covenant obsolete in fact the very moment Jesus died what happened sky went dark earth shook something else happened incredibly important There's this big, heavy veil or or, or curtain in the temple, and it says, Jesus breathed his last, and then the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom. Now, the veil was kind of tall. For somebody to rip it from the top means they'd have to get on a really tall ladder. No. God from above struck that veil and cast it open, saying, the Holy of Holies is no longer this secret place that only the high priest can go in. Everything has changed. That whole arrangement is now obsolete. There's not a need to veil for that veil any longer because that earthly temple has now been replaced by a heavenly temple. That earthly covenant, that old covenant, has been replaced by a new covenant. I want to finish up with just one, one observation. Just to reiterate what I said earlier, Jesus is not simply the king, the priest, superior to Levitical priests and superior to Davidic kings. He is our king. He is our priest. I talked earlier about the blessing of assurance of salvation, and Hebrews emphasizes over and over the importance of holding fast to that assurance of hope. The reality is a real Christian, a sincere Christian, can experience times where you don't sense real assurance of salvation in fact there's a wonderful chapter in our confession of faith it's chapter uh, 18 called of assurance of grace and salvation and it talks about the fact that a true believer can labor for a long time without a sense of that assurance but it also says it's, it's the birthright of every real christian every christian ought to and can enjoy assurance of salvation And so we must employ the means necessary to gain that assurance. And we must guard it carefully as a precious gift given by God. Hold fast to that assurance of hope until the very end. pursue those things in our lives that foster lively assurance and hold fast to it until the very end.